23 minutes it is after 7 p.m. As I said, uh, of course, in the next few minutes or so here on Metro FM Talk, we're going to be uh, checking in uh, with uh, Jimmy Moyaha. We uh, take the latest, of course, uh, unfolding out in the world of business in our wrap of the top business stories. And as I said, yeah, you might want to comment on uh, uh, the lawfare unfolding between uh, President Sir Ramaphosa and uh, former President uh, Jacob Zuma uh, in uh, the private prosecution matter there where uh, President J- Zuma... Uh, is, uh, yeah, I guess uh, saying that uh, President Ramaphosa is an accessory uh, in the matter involving, of course, Billy Downer and uh, Karen Morn. And uh, you might uh, want to uh, give us some of your thoughts on that particular one. Also, the, it seems a uh, showdown looming here between Sakela Bushungu, Vice-Chancellor out at uh, University of Forte, uh, and uh, uh, a Minister of Higher Education and Training, Bongingosi, uh, Blade and Zamande. And uh, we're going to be uh, speaking about that Um yeah, it seems Dr. Nzimande was out in Alice over the last few days or so, and uh, seemingly the vice chancellor saying, and uh, yeah, we make sense of that uh, tonight. And uh, the, uh, I guess the implications of that, it seems, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Bushungo, Professor Bushungo, they're rather despondent about the ability of the law enforcement authorities to uh, secure his person, but to also secure uh, many of those um, with whom he works and to also make some significant progress uh, in following through in the investigations into the murder of others uh, that have unfolded there Wano College at the University of Forte. So uh, you might want to talk to us about that and uh, we'll be reflecting on that and more uh, tonight here on Metro FM Talk. Mastabatel tubanangaleni njikalanga sinamkele kweli konga. Apo sinipagela zonke samateni kweli lizweka zili Afrika. Sinitulele kweli tunga kubasi asaze sisu soma ambi Asingakanani ngumshonzo nga semba Siti khablange ni nga fi ngindozo bao Kule pegile seilepu zama kwebo kwebo nukokosho Kuba wacho no tambo watindlela yoko ngobu kalu kalu ule mzansa Afrika Kukufagulua mvila kui ekonomi yao Senza londo ketina singabandwa na bomkuba Singabandwa na benzaka, singamatola nyonga ande kuzelana Singabandwa na bakula ngenembe kaka siyegeje Sazalwa sinamazinyo, singamakweba omga Kwa hisi nga matreba omti yokaka umnguma. Sisi sukulwana skamka yolili nga penda bozuko. Sisi sukulwana sembongi kazu nunti izi mkweto. Kwa hikele mita isashuka nisayo yag chanja pe Afrika. Kubaka loku singama Afrika asembo tina. Kwa hiki watu mangutiana singa isusa na nini na. Kasi yibanga le ekonomi. 26 minutes after 7 p.m. We go straight into it. Uh, Jimmy Moyaha, market analyst, joins me on the line to uh, make sense of the latest out in the markets. And uh, Jimmy, good evening to you. Welcome and uh, best wishes for 2023. Good evening, Aya. Best wishes to you and best wishes to our listeners. Thank you very much. I hope you're well, man. So, Jimmy, I want us to start off here. The World Economic Forum coming up in the next few days or so. Uh, South Africa had a business breakfast. I guess, uh, to uh, start to think through what South Africa Inc. will take to Davos. Uh, And uh, yeah, I guess it was, as could be expected, an opportunity to lament the latest unfolding out at ESCOM, ministers spitting fire. uh, And um, you would have heard uh, Minister Kwede Mandashe a few weeks ago saying, you know, this this is effectively, you know, treasonous, if I can put it that way. And uh, yeah, earlier on today also, uh, Minister Enoch Kodongwana saying, it's inexplicable what's happening at ESCOM. And similarly, Minister Naledi Pando raising the same as well. Um, yeah, doesn't really, I guess, embolden us when uh, it seems many of those in executive authority are despondent about the same thing we are crying about. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, 
I found those I found those statements a bit puzzling to to say the least, given the fact that it is essentially the government complaining about the government. Um, right. But <laughs> it, it just it seemed a bit ironic, um, and 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 I, I get a sense that ministers are now trying to distance themselves and say, oh, but it wasn't my portfolio, uh, therefore it wasn't my responsibility, and all of that. But if if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, b- before this last uh, ANC-NEC conference, all of these members were part of the ANC-NEC um, and were mm. elected to be ministers. And the ANC is the ruling party, and the government of South Africa is the responsible and major stakeholder in ESCOM that mm. then determines who the CEO is, who the board is. Um, yeah, we can argue technicalities about processes and... Um, procedures and statutes about how people are elected. But at the end of the day, if we think about ESCOM as a business, the business owner is the government of South Africa. So for the government of South Africa, members of the government of South Africa, who the the same ANC that says we take collective responsibility to now say, oh, but what's happening at ESCOM? We don't know. For me, I don't know. Just seems a bit strange. Mm, mm. But also, I guess uh, another thing that would have had a massive bearing on the fortunes of ESCOM today was that um, announcement by the regulator uh, of a 18.65% tariff hike. And um, I found that presentation, I must say, I mean, I I watched much of it and uh, found it rather interesting. Um, One, because I guess it often gives us a glimpse into how the prices of electricity are set. um, And often ESCOM certainly doesn't get what it applies for. uh, And it had applied in this case for around 32.6%. Increase it got eighteen point six five percent, but um, it seems uh, I guess some tough talk as well from the energy regulator saying they are non-negotiables. One of those is you're going to get an uh, energy availability factor that's around, you know, uh, I guess uh, four fifths uh, or three quarters, I should say, around seventy five percent or so, um, and that uh, I guess uh, we understand you're going to be burning a lot more diesel. Yeah, I mean, I you say that. Um ESCOM doesn't get their tariffs. But, I mean, if we look at the 32% uh, hike that's been proposed, it's basically just been split over two years because next year in April they get the the other 12.7%. That brings them up to 30%. That's the one point. The other point Mm. is over the last 10 years, ESCOM has gotten 753% increases in tariff hikes. So I, I, I don't know if, they don't, if, not, if they're not getting their hikes, but I mean, 700% seems a little above inflation, if you ask me. Look, I mean, certainly is, right? Um, and I think th- the unsettling thing here is, of course, what, what is driving that. Um, and if one looks at the sort of component parts of, um, you know, all of the things these guys factor in to arrive at their, you know, uh, allowable revenue uh, for uh, ESCOM, which is around, you know, uh, I think around 300 and something billion rand over the uh, uh, the two years in question here. Um, they look at the asset base and depreciation of the asset base of uh, ESCOM. They look at the return uh, ESCOM would get. They look at uh, provision for operational costs, salaries and so on. Uh, they also look at, uh, I guess, coal costs. Um, and in addition now, the costs of uh, the uh, diesel turbines and the independent power producer program. Um, what do you make, I guess, of, of some of the sort of no's that have come through from NERSA? You might have applied for, for five rand and they say, no, we'll only give you one rand. I found them quite interesting in the case, I guess, of coal costs and also of the IPPs. 
10 billion rand of a downward adjustment in the, uh, in this financial year or this financial year coming up and then of course uh, around 8 billion or so for the ipps in uh, the 2425 year uh, and similarly for coal 14 billion in the first and uh, around 11 billion rand in the next Yes, I mean the the, the downward adjustments um nurse is obviously trying to appeal to being um an independent regulator and sort of saying that uh we need to think of the best interests of uh the people and outweigh or weigh those up against the best interests of uh what Eskom is asking us to to give them. And I mean for me and I think for for a lot of South Africans the the hikes and the tariff uh, increases and all that would have been more palatable and easier to digest if we didn't have 57% of 2022 as load shedding days. Mm. We're 208 days out of the year as load shedding days. We're now in a situation where some some places have 10 hours of load shedding a day, some places have 8 hours of load shedding a day. Productivity is are going out the window the manufacturing sector is going to suffer and at the end of the day Eskom is still standing there saying give us more money give you give them more money to do what exactly so we're we're now looking at the fact that this latest tariff hike will bring in or will allow Eskom to recover 350 billion rand on top of that we're looking at the fact that the finance ministry has committed to bailing Eskom out mm. so so where where where's the money going to go if they're going to recover the money from the tariffs is that going to go into infrastructure development and into repairing the power stations that need to be completed how do we account for the fact that power stations are 10 years overdue still incomplete and 100 plus 120 plus percent over budget we we can't keep sitting there saying oh no there's expenditure that escom needs to incur therefore the people of south africa must foot to the bill and the people of south africa are saying okay fine we'll foot the bill but we what we're paying for electricity we don't have hmm. is that still a reasonable assertion at this point to then put forward to say no let's give escom more money to, for them to do what exactly with for us yes. to have another year of darkness are we waiting for a complete grid collapse before we acknowledge mm. that this problem is not down to a lack of financial resources Jimmy I'm also scared of a looming I guess uh, you know diesel collapse here I mean more than a tenfold rise in the uh, revised request for di- for diesel turbines by Eskom you know and Tlantla Kumete there from the uh, Narsa uh, one of the members there of the regulator saying you know the turbines are now deployed in virtually every hour of every day uh, which just shows you I guess the the coal plant that you're talking about uh, probably might be the biggest risk to a potential grid collapse Absolutely. And then you look at the fact that from Eskom's production, I mean, at any given moment, they'll tell you that there's on average what three to five thousand megawatts that are under mm. routine maintenance. Yet there's over fourteen thousand megawatts that is unscheduled breakdowns. Now the breakdowns are things that, <laughs> if you had maintained the plants, and that's a whole other conversation we can go into in mm. terms of what had, what had gone wrong or what is going wrong at Eskom. But is that being fixed? is it being attended to and are we going to just what what do we do in the event of a grid collapse right now are we going to wait for that before we roll out um alternative sources independent power producer sources and all of that we know that um Gwede Mantashe and the, and the minister of, uh, as the minister of um minerals resources and energy has um gazetted a couple of things and there's, there's a couple of independent power producers that have been approved and and plans that have been approved but at the end of the day you've got a statement coming out of the presidency saying that the president cannot interfere interfere sorry in statutory processes of nursa so where it relates to mm. um tariffs and that sort of thing but if we look back to what happened during the pandemic the government 
showed us that they have the, the ability to intervene in a crisis, declare a national state of emergency, or put in place measures, or gazette bills, and, and pass things virtually overnight. Yet it's taken us 14 years of load shedding to decide whether or not we still want to put ESCOM into business rescue, whether or not we want to admit that this is a failed state-owned entity, and the impact that this has had. We, are we waiting to see a complete shut, a complete blackout before we acknowledge that this is an adverse mm. impact? Yeah, Jimmy, hey, questions that need answers. Questions that need answers, bro. Let's uh, shift away from that uh, story, and I know many of our listeners uh, are often very incensed by the developments out at ESCOM. Uh, so uh, let's uh, shift that and uh, head out to the United States. Two interesting stories that have come out there. Um, uh, one out of the factories um, and the warehouses of Amazon, uh, where it seems uh, the labor relations struggles continue uh, with many workers uh, wanting to unionize. Um, I guess in an economy where potentially the ground for trade unions uh, in industrial sectors isn't potentially as open as what we might see here in South Africa. Yeah, so I mean, um, there was a big victory for um, the unions uh, in this Amazon case. Uh, we we know that um, it was it, it on this continued conversation around job cuts and the potential of job cuts. And um, Amazon's management has said that this case that they've recently gone through with the uh, National Labor Relations Board in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, went as they expected it to go. They knew that the national uh, Labor Relations Board wouldn't necessarily rule against themselves, and um, they're already planning to appeal the expected ruling. Um, but I think what, what this is uh, pointing towards is um, we're seeing an increase in the number of companies in the U.S. that are uh, announcing layoffs, announcing planned layoffs, and this is what concerning U.S. workers and the U.S. workforce to the extent that they're now looking towards unionized um, action and unionized um, situations to protect themselves and protect their jobs. We know that today we got um, initial jobless claims numbers, and those were still on the rise, even mm. though lower than expected from the U.S. We know that unemployment figures on their side have been showing some signs of positivity, um, but with the uh, ever rising concern of a U.S.-led recession, we know that companies in this sort of environment will more than likely go the route of job cuts to streamline their processes and cut costs where they can. These are the same companies that went and hired um, a lot during the COVID pandemic, and now with economic uncertainty, they're saying we need to downsize, uh, downsize we need to scale back and just reevaluate whether or not our workforce is adequate enough. Um, I know, I mean, uh, Elon Musk at Twitter did it very aggressively and might not have gone about it the best way. Mm. Um, but we know that guys like Meta have announced cuts of over 10,000 people. Amazon themselves, 18,000, uh, expected to be cut. Salesforce, um, another 10,000 uh, mm. 10, 10, there. BlackRock as well, asset manager in the U.S., announcing a 3% workforce cut. Um, that seems uh, that, that's rather small relative to the rest of the guys because that's only about 500 uh, people. And BlackRock increased their workforce by about 22% um, over the last uh, year. So overall, I think we're seeing in the U.S. big companies saying we, we need to plan ahead in anticipation of a recession Mm. um, and the data that comes out and the the rhetoric that comes out from the U.S. Fed is going to be a a big driving force around whether or not uh, we see a U.S.-led global recession and how uh, companies manage that is is something that we're starting to see very early on. Another story coming out of the U.S. and I must say, you know, there are certain things that I find, yeah, rather ah, when it comes to the U.S. Um, The one is that they still use checks 
um, mm. to a very significant degree. And uh, I certainly haven't seen a checkbook here in South <laughs> Africa in a long time, the physical one. Um, and then the other one is that it seems the um, aviation signaling systems still track the planes that are flying in and out on a logbook, a physical logbook that they write <laughs> down. I don't know what the Civil Aviation Authority does here in South Africa, but the Federal Aviation Authority in the U.S. seems to have... Um, yeah, being confronted by significant modernization challenges, the type of challenges that have led to 11,000 flight delays in uh, many critical areas in short succession. Uh, what impact would, um, I guess, all of these challenges uh, in the aviation sector in the U.S. Uh, have for the recovery of the U.S. and even, I guess, this looming prospect of a recession, as you said? Well, I mean, if, if, if so obviously there's going to be a, a, a significant impact if these uh, problems continue. Um, I think if we look at what's happened with the FAA in this particular case, um, I found it quite startling that this was only a 90-minute halt in the system that disrupted all these 11,000 flights. So imagine if the, the system was down for a day, how significant that would be. But the U.S. has um, planned on rolling out uh, a couple of, things um they've got a key next gen uh technology thing that they're all technologies platform that they're looking to roll out they've passed um if you remember they passed into law uh, an infrastructure package of about five billion dollars last year um and the faa is going to start to invest about a billion of that uh, into this next gen technology but their their main struggle at this stage is integration and integration with existing and old uh, older systems it's mm. not as though they can exactly shut down everything and say look we're going to run up a new system but um, well, and they might they might very well explore that option, or they've explored that option to say let's just put everything on hold uh, for a particular period of time, roll out the system, or whatever. But the problem with uh, places like the U.S. and the problem with the global setup is that um, you've got different time zones with different flights leaving at different times from around the world, coming into the U.S., crossing over the U.S., and something um, that you alluded to around how the U.S. Um, as a result of what happened with this alert system. Um, but I think overall, it's definitely going to be something that going forward, the, the, the U.S. is going to want to implement something. But whether or not they implement something that integrates with the rest of the world or <laughs> is, is something that um, they need to look at as well, is to say, when we implement a new system, how are we going to prevent what's happened now from happening in five or six years from now? Mm, mm. And I guess it's, it's, it's that kind of long-term systems type planning and thinking uh, that says look you plan for even the most unlikely uh, but uh, worst case eventuality and I think there are many risks and vulnerabilities that uh, COVID has shown up in the aviation sector and it seems now that uh, even challenges of modernization and infrastructure are showing up uh, in places like the US but um, the other one talking about infrastructure that I, I was quite keen that we talk about Jimmy is the story now very bizarre story of um, one of the world's largest, um, you know, assemblers of rolling stock in the world of rail. Um, and that's a Chinese entity here, which was part of the 1064 contract uh, of um, notoriety. Uh, Zondo Commission mentioned it, you know, and uh, certainly, uh, I guess, uh, one of the flashpoint projects of uh, state capture. And it seems now we thought at the end of last year they had come to an agreement with Transnet about inflated profits and paying those back. And also, I guess, giving them parts. And it seems uh, that agreement now off the table. Uh, quite a bizarre story. But what do you then do now when you've got, you know, planes that need to be refurbished and, um, I guess, repaired, but the people that are supposed to repair them who made the trains are not willing to give you parts? 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you remember what happened uh, with that with that settlement agreement, the, those talks um, or that, that agreement was sort of reached in principle in about August of last year and finalized in November. But what was critical was that the Chinese uh, locomotive company then put in place a um, almost a contingent condition to say that this is obviously subject to um, their ability to achieve normalization of operations within South Africa, and that they felt was being impeded by um, SARS and the central bank, so the Reserve Bank of South Africa. And that was obviously off the back of the, the, the link to the state capture that you mentioned earlier. Um, and off the back of that, SARS had frozen the company's accounts and had said that um, they basically there was a tax bill of more than $3.6 billion that they were looking to recover. So the resistance is being met from that perspective from the Chinese to say that this was our condition, is that we needed to achieve a normalization of, of the ability to operate once again. And they're using that to, to sort of delay um, mm. giving the parts back. But the thing is, um, these locomotives were used for three of the major corridors of Transnet, and these three major corridors carry about 50% of Transnet's revenue. And that's the concern, is aside from all of this and the state capture and what's happening and the bureaucracy and back and forth and China not wanting to cooperate or pay the tax bill or whatever it is, that that concentration risk is very dangerous when we have Transnet as effectively the only major rail operator and the the three corridors that are being blocked move chrome, um, coal, and manganese. So you, you're basically crippling the rail infrastructure of the country by by having all of these things be facilitated through one um, locomotive provider. They are alternative locomotive providers, and that's what Transnet is now wanting to do to say they're issuing an urgent tender to um, three other uh, long-standing locomotive mm. uh, providers to, for, for the alternative repairs. But shouldn't surely Transnet should have considered at some point to just allocate each of the three major corridors to different providers to avoid but, but a concentration Jimmy, risk such as this. Th- there's, two, there's two issues at play here, right? There's the opening up of corridors mm-hmm. to private participation that you mentioned, which I guess it seems uh, is something that uh, Transnet indeed wants to pursue. Um, and then I guess on the second hand, there's the issue of the immediate challenge of getting enough rolling stock to be able to get certain commodity types on the road. Um, and, and, and I think there's, one is a much more immediate and short-term thing that says, how do we get more rolling stock on the tracks uh, delivering uh, you know, commodities at a very favorable moment in the price cycle of many of these commodities? And then I think the other is a more institutional reform question. I mean, you saw when they put out the 25-year you know, concession process and asked for people to, you know, come on board. Very few people did because the terms seemingly weren't, I guess, as attractive. So it seems that that's more a medium-term thing that still has to be resolved insofar as the design is concerned. But, you know, the Minerals Council, I mean, is calling for the head of Porsche Derby here because of some of the more immediate stuff, saying, look, you know, there are immediate things now that you should be fixing. And I assume that a key part of that is getting some of these trains that were promised and paid for on the railway lines. Absolutely. And I mean, um, in addition to that, they're also calling for uh, the CEO of the freight, uh, Cesar Nzimela, uh, as yes, well. Yeah. yeah, so so if we look at the, the, the contract with the Chinese locomotive company, um, there are about 161 
non-operational locomotives. Mm. Um, they're still at repayment of the profits that we still need to look at. There's still 99 locomotives that have not been delivered because they were at an inflated price and now need to be um, provided at, a, at the corrected price. So, yes, sure. again, those are so, sort of more medium-term sure. uh, things, as you mentioned. For, for the immediate-term uh, things, I think it, it's... At this point, firing another CEO and and all of that without looking at the structural reform Mm. is probably something that's not going to set us right in the long term and it's not going to set us right in the medium term at this stage because if you look at Transnet's operation over the last 18 months they've declared force majeure six times now they're going to argue yes that it's been over different things and things beyond their control and all of that but at the end of the day that points to an, a certain inability to manage certain things and yes if, that, if they want to pin that on the group CEO or they want to pin that on uh, the CEO of, of um, the freight and rail then, that, that, then that's fine but Firing the, the two CEOs is not going to solve the immediate problem you alluded to around the fact that those critical parts mm, are not here. Sure. So then they're going to say, okay, Transnet is now going to issue an urgent tender to, to do this. But now that tender is going to take long because if the, if the process is unfollowed properly or if someone um, goes the route of wanting to uh, pay the bribes that uh, they, they, they believe that needs to get the tender or something or there's a dispute or whatever, that's going to create a bigger problem. So in situations like this, and this, this is a situation that we can compare directly to ESCOM where there are where critical infrastructure that affects the country at a national level, these sorts of emergencies should be able to um, bypass procedure. There should be a system in place or there should be protocols in place that say um, in the event of this sort of an emergency, Mm. because 50% of their revenue, when they're already not exactly the most profitable organization, is is, is a significant amount, right? So if you're going to say that... Yeah, yeah. sorry, man, we're going to have to leave it here, unfortunately, but I think the point is well made. Uh, that uh, we do need a judicious mix of um, medium-term and short-term solutions that can resolve this, or else uh, I guess uh, some of the favorable commodity prices that we've seen might not make uh, their way uh, into better tax collections, which uh, is certainly not in favor of all of us. Uh, Jimmy, as always, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Jimmy Moyaha speaks to us uh, tonight, a market analyst helping us with our wrap of the top business stories. We take a brief break in our headline segment. Uh, Minister Kumbuzon Chabeni is my guest. We talk about the state bank and, uh, yeah, modernization of the post bank and the post bank amendment bill.